Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to all of our Evolving to Exceptional listeners. This week, we have Billy Lahr with us today. Um, and he is coming to talk to us about mindfulness. He's an intentional uh, mindfulness coach, intentional living and mindfulness coach, and the host of the Mindful Midlife Crisis podcast. And we're excited to have him here with us and tell us to tell us about his story and his journey with using mindfulness and how he's applied it um, and how he's used it in his life and how how that has positively impacted him throughout his life. So Billy, I would love for you to just start with giving us uh, uh, a little bit of your backstory of your why, how you got to where you are today and why it is that you're so focused on this topic now at this point in your life. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jessica. I appreciate it. So I have been practicing mindfulness for about 10 years and I was introduced to mindfulness through therapy because I was struggling with anxiety and depression and those things were manifesting into suicidal ideation. So I knew that I needed to get some sort of support. And, and luckily, my, my best friend, he has his PhD in forenzo neuropsychology. And, and he had said, listen, you like, these things that you're telling me, these are, these are not healthy things. These are worrisome things. You need to go talk to a therapist about something. And I went and connected with a therapist named Mindy Ben Dixon. And I always give her a shout out because I often tell people that mindfulness not only changed my life, but it most likely saved it as well. And that means that Mindy is the person who not only changed my life, but most likely saved it as well. So I started practicing mindfulness with her during our therapy sessions. And what I found is that I was able to manage the, the, my anxiety better because I understood the somatic experience of anxiety. So I understood where I was feeling anxiety in the body. And then when those feelings and those sensations were present, then I was able to just kind of hit the pause button and say, oh, you know what this is. This is this is anxiety. And rather than trying to shove it away and push it away and keep it keep it on the other side of the door, what I would do is just kind of keep it where it was at and just and let and recognize that, OK, it's here. So the more you fight against it, the, the stronger it's going to grow. So let's just acknowledge that it's here. We have awareness that we're here and work from a mindset that, hey, whatever's going on right now, is there's creating some anxiety. So now that you're aware of that, how can you respond to situations as opposed to react? How can you respond to stimuli going on around you as opposed to being impulsive? And those are all things that I had struggled with leading up to that point. And don't get me wrong, I still struggle with that stuff. But it's less frequent than it used to be. So much so to the point that when I worked in education, the next school year, one of my students said, you seem like you're in a better mood this year. 
And that was kind of the stamp of approval right there. It was like, oh, well, if these guys recognize it, just how how palpable this must be, this this feeling, this energy that I'm giving off. And one of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me is, Billy, the reason why I like you is because when you're excited about something, you want everybody else to be excited about it, too. So I thought to myself, gosh, if this whole mindfulness thing can help a nut job like me, I wonder if there's other people out there who would also benefit from practicing this. So I started learning more about it and and taking courses about it. And then I started leading it in my classroom. I started leading it for staff. And now I'm here in Seoul, South Korea, and I'm leading virtual mindfulness sessions for people all around the world. And I just earned my certified mindfulness meditation teacher uh, certificate. And and this is, I, I feel... One of the one of the tenets of mindfulness is gratitude. And I feel like this is my way of extending gratitude, not just to the mindfulness practice, but to Mindy for introducing it to me. And I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm passionate about helping people live more mindfully, but at the same time, too, I recognize that I'm not here to plant seeds, I'm just here to water them. We all know that mindfulness has benefits. We all know that. But we also know that vegetables are really healthy for us. But vegetables are not sexy. Mindfulness is not sexy. So there is that challenge right there in trying to to help people recognize that or at least cultivate the, the discipline and the consistency that it takes in order to really truly reap the benefits of a mindfulness practice. And that's one of the things that I do as a coach is just kind of help people recognize, Hey, you know, you do have time for this. Let's, let's demystify what mindfulness is so that it actually feels more attainable. It feels more practical. So I'm curious for our listeners, if you could just define, define for us what you mean by mindfulness, what people, I think people use that term quite a bit uh, and don't necessarily, everybody doesn't necessarily have the same understanding of what we're talking about. And, and you talked about mindfulness meditations and you talked about your mindfulness certification help with what characterized, characterizes mindfulness. Yeah, I was actually having a conversation with a woman a couple months back. <laughs> she said, she said, don't you feel like mindfulness and meditation have a PR problem? And I do. They have a real PR problem because people get told to be mindful by people who have absolutely no idea what it means to be mindful or what the steps are to, to be more mindful. And it's really, it's not that complicated but it is a challenging task, especially in this day and age where we are inundated with stimuli. So when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about being aware of whatever is present without judgment. So we are aware of whatever is present around us and whatever is present within us. And the key part there is the without judgment. 
And that's often the difficult piece because the, the first hard part is just being present and being aware that your mind has drifted to the past or, or gone to the future. So then when we bring ourselves back, what are we present with? And allowing ourselves to just be okay with whatever emotion comes up. I'll give you an example. I really have an issue with this whole idea of live life with no regrets. Why? Regret is a normal emotion that we experience. So if I sit here and I'm aware that I have this regret within me, then I can operate from an understanding that the thoughts and the, and the decisions that I'm making are coming from this feeling of regret. And so I can be aware of that. And instead, I can feel that emotion. And then I can allow that emotion to pass rather than trying to block it away and say, oh, I'm, I'm not. But subconsciously, you're still operating from that. But now you're also operating from denial. So accepting what is so that you then can move forward. I think that's helpful. And I, I think what's interesting is kind of your your path to mindfulness and how it's kind of guided you into a, a different journey. You talked about, you know, being in Seoul, South Korea in a totally different place and really coaching people around this. And that was a shift from your your earlier career, right? From what you you thought you were going to continue doing or what you, path you thought you were on. Tell us a little bit about that shift in direction and why that's been so, so instrumental in, in your life and in your, your future direction. Yeah. I don't know that, that there, it's really been a significant shift. My, I guess what gives me meaning is helping people navigate the complexities and possibilities of life. And I used to do that as an English teacher. And so the, the, the title has changed, but the meaning has not. So, you know, I worked in education for 15 years, or excuse me, for 21 years, I was an English teacher for 15 years, and then I moved into a dean of students position for six. And, you know, being a dean of students, you're always the bad guy. Nobody likes the dean of students. And I was delivering bad news to students, to teachers, to parents all the time. I didn't enjoy that. I didn't derive any joy from from doing any of that. And I, I look back on those six years as being a dean and really feeling like I regressed when it comes to finding a community that that was willing to kind of like rally around what it was that I was trying to trying to teach people. Because I was working in an alternative program, so students were coming to me with all sorts of social, emotional, behavioral, and academic barriers. So it, the buy-in was, was much more difficult. And then as a dean, you're really trying to help uh, teenagers reflect, learn, and grow and, and help them kind of see their, their behaviors and say to them, listen, it's okay to make 
old mistakes, but to me, it's okay to make new mistakes, but it's not okay to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And to get them to see that was really, really challenging. So I, 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 you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have the same responsibilities that everybody else has, but I did have a dog at one point in time. And I said to myself, as soon as that dog crosses the rainbow bridge, I'm going to take a leave from this job because that was something that I'd always wanted to do. I'd always wanted to just take a year to travel. Well, I did that. And that year turned into two years and now we're moving into the third year. And I, and I was like, what, what am I going to do here? Like, like, I, I need to find something now that I'm not in education anymore that's to to kind of continue with this meaning that I have to help people navigate life. And so I started the podcast, and that's really where that podcast came from, was just, a, you know, I was going through that that journey. I wanted to help other people go through that journey. But then I saw a real need to help people navigate life more intentionally and more mindfully. And so now I find myself in Seoul, South Korea. And the reason why I keep coming back to Seoul, South Korea is because one of the principles that I that I teach in my coaching program is the importance of community and crew and how that community and crew helps amplify and support the work that you're doing. And nowhere have I felt more supported and nowhere have I felt just more myself than here in the, with the community of people that I've met in Seoul. So I feel very, very fortunate that I have found all of these pieces and put them together. And, you know, as, as my time here goes on and on, the, the picture in the puzzle is starting to become clearer. So uh, it's a, such an interesting like kind of path and I can see how you used a lot of these principles in your past roles and now you're using them to to apply them to your clients in this in this coaching space. Tell us a little bit more about your approach to mindfulness. You've hit on a couple of the tenets um, or the core elements of mindfulness. How do you approach or look at at the mindfulness practice and you know in the context of people's people's lives and what they're doing with their lives and and how they make some of those decisions in their lives? Yeah, I lead guided practices every Monday evening at 8 p.m. Central Time. So if people are interested in that, they can check the show notes. I'm sure you'll have something in there about that. But uh, I, for me, my tenets of, of, of teaching mindfulness are helping people live with more curiosity, openness, compassion, awareness, gratitude, acceptance, and non-judgment. So all of the guided meditations revolve around one of those themes. And so a lot of it first, before we kind of get into the guided practice, is just learning to be able to ground yourself using your breath so that we can be present. And even if you just showed up for the first three to five minutes of that grounding practice, that's something that you could walk away with. And it's something that you could use in those three to five minutes 
before you walk into work. You know, if you commute to work and you're in your car, don't hop out of your car right away. Instead, you take those three to five minutes to simply be present with your breath. You bring awareness to what is, and then you can get out of the car and make your way into the building because then you know what it is that you are bringing into your day or at least bringing into your morning. And you can do that three to five minutes again at the end of lunch. You can do that again at the end of the day. And the next thing you know, you have a 10 to 15 minute mindfulness practice. You don't have to do it all at once. I started very small because this idea of just sitting with what is and being present with your breath is boring. It's boring. <laughs> it's and it's the thing is, it's actually really, really hard to do too. And people all the time say to me, I don't think I'm doing it right. I don't think I'm doing it. I'm like, you're here practicing. That means you're doing it right. So as long as you are aware that your mind has drifted away from whatever it is that we're present with. And I try, I like to start people with just being focused on your breath. And sometimes I'll have people be focused on the sounds around them. As long as you're, you're, you're using those as your anchors. And then when you realize, oh, I'm not thinking about my breath anymore. I'm not focused on my breath anymore. I'm not focused on those sounds anymore. That can bring awareness to where you have drifted. And then you can come back to the present moment. And that's sort of the beauty of mindfulness is that the practice is in the failure and the awareness of that failure and then the compassion to come back. Because that's sort of what we call, we call it the second arrow. The first arrow is that you're not aware of what you're doing anymore. But then the second arrow is the judgment. And it's oftentimes the second arrow that hurts more. Why does this always happen to me? That's the second arrow. And that's where we wallow in, in these really dark emotions. And again, those dark emotions are all normal. And it's okay to feel those. But remembering that we are not our thoughts, that those thoughts are present and those thoughts are impermeable, they come and they go. And letting them go and recognizing and having the ability to see that it's time to let them go are all really beneficial practices and, and byproducts of, of mindfulness. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as you talk mindfulness. And I think of mindfulness as kind of a practice. It's the, it's the doing um, of an activity that creates that greater self-awareness. And as you're talking about that breathing and that, and even just that small benefit, when we look at that through kind of the neuroscience lens, what we're doing there is we're balancing our nervous system. So our nervous systems are constantly pulled out of our conscious balance state into these states of, of either our sympathetic fight flight or our or our dorsal vagal um freeze responses and as we get pulled out of that balanced state it becomes more difficult to practice mindfulness and so i love that that's how your practice starts is with that breathing and just creating that sense of awareness and and so often i think especially when when it comes to our listeners who are dealing with performance especially performance in the workplace 
we're so focused on where we've been and where we're going to go next of the the to-do list of things that we just got and the things we still have yet to do that we spend very little time just in the present moment. We spend very little time just getting into that balanced present state. And so I think you're right. That alone can create a tremendous shift for, for, for people to just do that simple practice, even for that short period of time, because we spend so much of our life outside of ourselves, busy dealing with all the chaos and things that are around us um, that pull us out of that kind of mindful, self-aware, introspective type of state or way of, way of being. Yeah. And it's, it's moving out of doing mode into being mode how do we just simply be and we're so used to doing things that the idea of being feels lazy and self-indulgent so it doesn't have to be that it can just it, it, it's work it is still work to be present because there's an intentionality around it and the more that we are able to cultivate this awareness the more we're able to tap into curiosity and openness and compassion and acceptance and gratitude and non-judgment. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, I think it's interesting when, when we look at, when we teach self-awareness, we talk about kind of the four avenues or of ways to cultivate that self-awareness is the self-reflection, kind of journaling or writing your thoughts, that emotional awareness that you talked about, and then the the mindfulness, the mindfulness of practices of coming into to connection with ourselves and really understanding um, that experience and what what we're experiencing. So, so bring us for, forward through a little bit more of of those practices and and what you do around around mindfulness. Yeah, well, really quickly, I'm glad that you brought up the neuroscience around it too, because this isn't some woo-woo nonsense right here. This has been researched. This has been studied. There's numerous studies out there. There's numerous research, all sorts of research, all sorts of benefits that's out there. And just to kind of talk about the brain here really quickly, what separates us from the animals is that we have our prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is what regulates emotion. And mindfulness has been proven to develop the gray matter in our prefrontal cortex that allows us to regulate our emotion. And through mindfulness, we are actually able to cool and shrink the amygdala. And the amygdala is what activates that fight, flight, or fright response. That is our reptile brain. That is our animal brain right there. So if we can cool our fight, flight, or fright response and activate our prefrontal cortex, then we move from being impulsive and reactive too responsive so in order to kind of to help develop that again just finding those moments to be present throughout the day um one thing that i that i try to help people do people can take a look at if they want to look at episode 113 we do a mindful eating exercise where it's you know again we do the grounding but then we we take in all five senses as we are eating, because I don't think that we do that very often. I like I very rarely do. So if I'm not intentional about it, then I'll just shovel my food into my face. And then that's it. Right. 
but there are times when I catch myself doing that and I'm like, hey, wait, slow down. This is actually better for digestion if we slow down. It actually gives the brain and the stomach time to communicate with itself. So we do some mindful eating activities. I'm trying to remember if it's episode 108, but I, my, I, my co-host Matt Hazard is very much a coffee connoisseur. So I asked him, when was the last time you actually experienced your coffee, that you actually sat with your coffee? And he's like, oh, he's like, I, I really don't do that. I just sit at my desk and then I drink my coffee while I'm working. And I'm like, you put all that time and effort in the morning to brew this cup of coffee. You spend good money on, he's got a coffee membership. Like you got it. Like I don't drink coffee. So, so, but I know that he loves his coffee. So I'm like, listen, what if you just took like five to 10 minutes to really just be present with the heat, the steam that comes off the coffee, the color of the coffee, the taste of the coffee, how it feels when it hits your lips, when it hits your tongue as you're drinking it. And bringing all of that to mind and just being present with that. So again, this idea of demystifying mindfulness, it doesn't have to be people sitting cross-legged with their forefinger and their thumb touching uh, next to a river or on top of a mountain. It doesn't have to be that. Yes, mindfulness, or excuse me, meditation is extremely beneficial form of mindfulness. So a lot of times we use those two words interchangeably, but mindfulness is simply being present of the, the or excuse me, just being aware of the present moment without judgment. Now we can do that doing a variety of things. And the more that we practice that, and meditation is a way to practice mindfulness, but so is that coffee drinking, so is that mindful eating. We do mindful walking activities. The more that we do that, and we are able to then bring to mind what I call in-the-moment mindfulness, where all of that practice kind of leads to game time when we're having conversations that are difficult, when we are in a work meeting, when we're doing a presentation, we're aware of what emotions, we're aware of what sensations are there in the moment. And then we can say, oh, this is present within me right now. So now I can operate from that. And again, it's not necessarily saying that you're operating from anger, but what you're saying is anger is present within me. How can I respond as opposed to react emotionally out of anger? What is what can I can I see the big picture here? Or can I see the other side of things too? And it's not necessarily that you have to agree, but you can agree to disagree, but in a way that still feels mutually respectful that the, the other person is heard, but also that you are heard as well. So these in the moment mindfulness, this info, this in the moment mindfulness is really crucial when it comes to our relationships, to our communication. We have an episode coming out about the quantifiable costs of mindlessness. So how do we continue to practice being aware? And the reality is this. Nobody, not even the most Buddhist monk, 
is mindful and aware 100% of the time. So we can put that, we, you, you don't need to put that kind of pressure on yourself. But how can you activate more awareness and more intentionality around your life? We're not looking for 100%. Can we go from 1% to 2%? That, that will make a significant impact in your life. I, well, and I, I love that you brought up, I want to go back to that you brought up the mindfulness around eating, because one of the other things we know from, from a neuroscience perspective is that when we're in different uh, neurobiological states, depending upon the state of our nervous system, it impacts the way food tastes. So our experience, our taste buds, how we um, how we actually process the taste that we're experiencing is different based on how mindful we are or how balanced we are or are the emotions that we're experiencing at that point in time are is going to impact what things taste like. And, and it's similar with our interactions and experiences. If I am in a heightened, stressed state because I've just had an argument with my, with my kids at home or my spouse, and I come into uh, a meeting with one of my employees and they tell me they just, you know, screwed up a project, how is that going to impact my response because of the state that I'm already in? And so I, I love that you're talking about here that creating just that awareness and that that consciousness of what state am I in? Why am I in that state? Because it starts with awareness to then be able to shift it, to then be able to do the breathing that you talked about earlier or the mindful eating that you talked about to, to create a shift in, in our understanding and in, in our experience in those moments. And I think the other thing that that stood out to me there was the 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 mastery of self-awareness and you talked about you know even the the buddhist monks can't do this all of the time and i think it's important and you talked about that that mindfulness is more about a way of being than doing and i think that that's kind of the element is that we're always going to be impacted our neurophysiological systems are always going to be impacted by our environments and our experiences by the things that we're encountering and we're experiencing which means by nature, we can only ever be aware, self-aware in the present moment. We can't do it for the past and we can't do it for the future, which means we can't ever be a master of self-awareness because it only happens in the present moment. So it's something we have to just bring ourselves back to as we're having these experiences, as we're having these interactions and moving through different environments. That's what brings us back to that state and allows us to start to create new neural pathways or ways of being, ways of being where we are more conscious of those emotions, or we're more present when we're eating, or we're more uh, likely to do some balanced breathing to bring us back into balance when we when we inevitably get pulled out of it. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that people are just like, well, I'll just be more mindful. Great. What does that look like? Oh, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just do all the things that you said. Okay, so how are you going to get there? Because you're, you're not there yet. So you, you, this, there needs to be a practice around this. There needs to be intentionality around this. Like, I, I can't just say, well, I'm just going to learn how to play guitar and then just magically pick up a guitar and then, you know, rock out to, to some Jimi Hendrix licks or so, something like that, right? That's not how it works. 
you have to practice, you have to build up to it. So a lot of times people will just say, well, I'll just be more mindful then. No, you won't. Like you, you, you have to intentionally practice this, this, these meditations or doing mindful eating or doing, you have, you have to be able to say, okay, this is something that is important to me. So I am going to find time in my life in order to practice this because it's, you're not just going to be able to snap your fingers and have heightened awareness. It comes through practice. I really want to stress that because I think people, people just think it's a switch that you can turn off and on. And that's really not the case. If it was a switch that I could have turned off and on, I will, you know, it would have benefited me to turn it on somewhere around my mid twenties rather than drink all the time. So it, it's just one of those things where it's like, no, you've built up these habits. So let this be a habit that you build up, that you practice just like you would with any talent or any skill. You, it's, it really is the same thing. Well, and, and I love when you when you talk about habits or skills. For me, I need triggers, or I won't I won't do it. I, it won't become part of what I do. And so, for me, journaling is a trigger. That's a way to practice mindfulness. Pen to paper kind of forces that that processing that what what's in me, what's going on. One that I learned early on that I use all the time. So I want to give this as an example because it's one of my favorites. Is what I call creating lifetime movie moments. So one of the things that I do in, in my family or with my kids when I had kids early on was how could I slow down a moment that I'm having with my kids and look at it as if it were part of a movie? Just that happy that, you know, we all know the holiday lifetime movies where the, everything works out beautifully and, you know, the, the, the stuffing spills all over the floor and everybody just laughs and nobody fights over it, right? It's, it's just a funny experience. And so instead, looking at the experiences with my kids that way, so us dancing to Christmas music or putting um, ornaments on the tree, how can I slow that down as if I'm watching a movie, as if it's that precious and that important? and that valuable of a moment and make it joy-filled, make it funny, make it um, what I want it to be rather than a reactive, explosive, you know, negative experience. And it's something that, that you know, I use all the time. And, and one of my favorite stories is I was, a, I was about to board my first plane. I had, I had twin three-year-old girls. And um, at the time, my son was, was five. So twin three-year-olds and a five-year-old boy, and we forgot to get the tag for the stroller, my husband and I. And so the flight attendant looks at my husband and says, you go get the stroller and you board with the three kids and two pieces of luggage. And so here I am with three tiny kids getting on the plane for the first time and three pieces of luggage. And I'm like, I literally just immediately went, Lifetime movie moment, lifetime movie moment, and to try to make it as funny and joy filled and we're just going to do this and I'm going to be proud of myself in the end, rather than like a stress filled, like angry, you know, moment. And, and so it's as simple. I like to use those as everyday life experiences, like the things that just happen. How can you shift them just a little bit to become really present? 
and intentional in that experience, in what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it the way that you're doing it and create that awareness and that sense of presence in throughout your life. So it doesn't have to be like you said, you know, sitting with your legs crossed and your fingers, you know, connected together. It can be in your life, in the experience of living. I like the home, uh, that uh, Hallmark mindful or that Hallmark movie moment right there. <laughs> I might have to steal that. Is I've got a couple anecdotes to to follow with that. So when I went to the Louvre, uh, Louvre, Louvre, whatever in Paris, I, I I made a beeline to the Mona Lisa like everybody else does. But when I I went there and I finally kind of nudged my way up to the front. I took my picture, but then I sat at the railing and had this moment with her where she and I looked at each other in the eyes and we just kind of had this nonverbal communication of, you know, what, what is that smile all about? What is in it? And just kind of had this, this playful interaction. And yes, I know it's a painting, but for me is it, it just was kind of, I'm taking in this moment right here because people would just go and take a picture and leave and i'm like no i actually want to see what all the hype is all about like i want i just want to see the mona lisa i don't want to judge it for its artistic value i just want to see it because i've seen it in pictures and all that sort of thing but then when you turn around there's actually this beautiful tapestry that hangs from the wall behind it that nobody pays attention to and nobody talks about. And it's quite stunning. It's incredible. So just being even present in that room allowed me to appreciate the Mona Lisa, but then turn around and really appreciate this other masterful piece of work that is the entire wall. It's huge. And it, it just, I feel that it gets overlooked. You, with these Hallmark moments, I have what I call a top 10 days. So it's, they're not necessarily the 10 best days of my life, but I kind of call them like the 10%, the best 10%, right? And, you know, it, we live about three, I think, what did I, what is it, 30,000 days? Something like that, right? I think that's kind of the the total if I, re, if I did my math, right? We live about 30,000 days. If 10% of those, you know, that's, that's 3,000 days, if I have 3000 really memorable days in my life, oh my god, what a or even just 3000 really memorable moments. What an incredible life to have lived. And maybe I don't maybe I don't get that many, but but being more present and being especially being more grateful and appreciative of the opportunities. That's a huge really a huge component to enjoying life as gratitude and appreciation. I feel if I do that more often, then A, it it lessens the the bad days. It, may, it, it doesn't make them feel so intense. Yes, they're still there, but I'm able to reframe it and say, you know, I'm going through a really difficult time right now, but he, these are the things that I am grateful for. These are the things that I appreciate. I'm so glad that I have these things in my life. And I can use that to not bury myself too far in in self-pity, 
so that I then can see the light at the at the end of the tunnel and say, all right, let me move forward with things now that I have these I have these this support around me in one way or another. Now I can move forward and maybe I can maybe I can rely on somebody to help me out or or this fortunate situation to kind of move me forward out of this. I, I I love that. And I think it's a great um, reflection for, for people to, to think about, especially in a world where AI is becoming more present, where things are getting automated, we're able to do things more quickly that used to take longer before. And as we get that time back, potentially to our lives, as things um, get automated or simpler, do we fill it with more mindlessness or a mindful And so what are you adding into your life as you get more life back? And is it creating value? Is it creating meaning and purpose and and greater things in your life? Or is it just uh, another mindless activity to fill the space? And, you know, you you talked to talked a little bit about, um, you know, before we got on about um, your your no no BS GPS guide to purpose and passion and and you're kind of don't follow your passion mantra. I'd love for you to tell us just a little bit about that as well. Oh my gosh. This whole idea of follow your passions drives me absolutely insane. So to me, purpose and passion are destinations. They are not starting points. If you most people who start with passion, they burn out. They burn out. So what I mean by passion as a destination and purpose as as a destination. And I was actually just listening to an episode about uh, of the Jordan Harbinger show where they talked about the cult of purpose. And I think what's really important is that your purpose does not have to be your job. You do not need to be gainfully employed in your purpose. And we need to kind of keep in mind too the difference between purpose and meaning. So meaning is the what, like what gives us meaning? That's what that answers. But the purpose is how we get to that point. So for me, what gives me meaning? What is my mission to help people navigate the complexities and possibilities of life? That's what gives me meaning. What's my purpose? Well, my purpose used to be being a teacher. So now my purpose has shifted a little bit and it, it went to when I wasn't feeling that purpose was being fulfilled. I created the podcast podcast wasn't paying me anything. I was paying to do the podcast, but there was still something that created purpose in my life or excuse me, created meaning in my life. And that was the purpose. And now I still have this meaning in life where I want to help people navigate. Right. But now I've moved into the mindfulness sphere. Another thing that gives me meaning is bringing people together. And there's, I mean, sure, I could be an event organizer, but why? Like, why would I do that when I can just simply bring my friends together and say, hey, there's this fun thing going on. Let's go see this band. This this acoustic band is playing. Let's go check them out. And I have found myself in these situations, particularly in Seoul, where I'm now an organizer for a meetup community. And I was telling you before that I organized uh, a Friendsgiving 
for 40 people here in Seoul. And they don't celebrate Thanksgiving in, in Korea. They, nobody has any idea about it. But I'm just like, hey, I'm an American. I'm away from my family. And I want to go out and eat a bunch of Korean food with my friends. Who's in? And 40 people signed up for it. So it's stuff like that. That's that's what gives me meaning. But if we're trying, if, we, if we're not sure like what gives us, most of us know what gives us meaning, but maybe we don't know purpose we don't know what to do in order to to get there so the way that i lay it out is like this let's first take a look at our strengths our weaknesses and our needs once we have an awareness of what those are then we can move into exploring our curiosities and i like to use mindfulness-based strategies in order to explore our curiosities what are some things that interest you what are some things that you're curious about what are some things that you used to be good at when you were a kid that maybe you don't do anymore as an adult but there's still kind of that piece in there right kind of that idea of you don't stop playing because you get old you get old because you stop playing so let's let's explore that a little bit and see where we can play but then this idea of finding our crew finding people who share the same curiosities find people who share the same interests who find the same hobbies and that then can that then leads to purpose right that's that's what we say okay now I can, I know what my meaning is, but now I didn't know where I could explore this or what opportunities were out there for me. Boom. Now I've got this purpose. So now if you want to take purpose and turn it into passion, you need to multiply purpose by consistency, discipline, patience, and self-compassion. Because then you are saying, all right, I am committing to this and i'm going to learn more about this i'm going to do this on a regular basis this now becomes my passion so it's not just something that i'm passionate about no that's a hobby sorry that's a hobby what you're describing right there and hobbies are good hobbies are good to have but this idea that you need to turn your passion into your life's work ridiculous i don't think you need to do that I think there are people out there who are really fortunate and who have been able to do that. And in because they've been able to do it, they see an opportunity to to be like, oh, hey, let's uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to coach you how to do this. And it's like, yeah, you, but but, you know, what are the steps that go along with it? And so for me, I think the steps come along with a lot of self-awareness and it comes with curiosity. That's the that's kind of the 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 woo-woo part. But then the structured part, that's the really difficult part. Because again, that consistency and discipline, that's always the hardest for anybody who's starting anything out that's new or that they are un- uncertain about or that they don't know a lot about. It's interesting. And it makes me think too about how businesses, um, you know, work to provide direction to provide, you know, what's the 
purpose, the vision, the mission, the strategy, the values? What's what's the direction in which the 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 organization or the reason in which the organization exists, and and how does it make decisions about what it does and doesn't do based on that, and how does it motivate its people um, along those lines? And one of the things you know I've always believed, and I think this kind of lines up with what you're saying a bit is that it doesn't necessarily matter what a business does if you can connect to your part within that business, to what you're um, contributing and how you're contributing. And so to your example about creating connection, you can create connection in a lot of different ways. You can be creative in a lot of different ways. You can use those those strengths or those talents in a, a lot of different ways. And, you know, it, as you talk about passion, and it depends on how you define it and, and what goes into that bucket, but it seems to me, or at least in, in my life experience, passions change. Um, we have passions yes. and they come <laughs> and they go and we, we, we are so passionate about this thing and then we're kind of not anymore and something's shifted in our lives. And so, so to try to follow our passion uh, almost leaves you in a constant state of wanting and never in a state of satisfaction. I love that. I, I absolutely love that. I, that what a great that that's like a mic drop moment right there that you just that that was so good yeah yeah that we're constantly seeking for for something more yeah that was that was great i'm when i re-listen to this episode i'm going to just like write that down as a little <laughs> note so i if you're listening to this i hope you i hope that hit you hard right there as hard as it hit me well, you know, if you just think about your life and I'm, I'm, you know, halfway through mine, hopefully not quite halfway through mine, depending on, you know, life expectancy and all of that. But, you know, I, I had a passion for the legal profession. I went to law school. I thought that was going to be my career. Came out of that. I went into the corporate space. I developed a passion for people and performance. I did that. I led, led IT and technology teams. I had a passion for that. I left there. I became an author. I had a passion for that. So to, so to say follow your passion to me, at least in my life experience, is it, it is an ever-moving, changing, morphing target. And so it's more about how does my current sense of passion, purpose, what I, what I, what I get meaning and derive purpose from connect to what I'm doing. And, and I believe, you know, there's lots of studies out there that show that uh, that life expectancy and health and all of those things are very much tied up with feeling like our 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 jobs, our careers, our calling. But it doesn't necessarily mean what we're doing is a really sexy thing. It can be to be a janitor in a grade school, and if you feel meaning and purpose in performing that function and keeping the school clean for kids so that they can go to school in a clean, you know, space and, and a, a space where they can learn that counts. It doesn't have to be to be a rock star. It can be a whole lot of different things. Well, there are two things that you said there that I, that I want to come back to is this, first of all, you know, you, you did, you went to law school and you worked in corporate and you were an author and people were like, well, it sounds like you followed your passions. Okay. But here's the thing. What, what you didn't talk about is the consistency and the discipline it took to get to that point, to, to each of those passions. And when we follow our passions, it just sounds like we're skipping down the yellow brick road and then boom, we land there. No, it took a lot of work. 
a lot of trial and error for you to get to those things, right? So I think that that's really important because we that's the thing that that the follow your passions crowd never talks about. Mm. They never talk about the consistency and the discipline and the patience and the self-compassion it takes in order to do all of that stuff. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I really like too is this idea that that and we we've talked about it here that your job doesn't a, a job can be a job. Just like just a job can be a job. But you can find meaning in the job. Maybe there there's that coworker that makes you laugh, right? That that and that's that he that's the person that you look forward to. I'll I'll give you an example. When I was teaching English in Rochester, Minnesota, I I had three classes. Two of them were required courses, world history with juniors and then English nine with freshmen. So those students were coming to me because they had to. They did not have a choice. But the class that I look forward to every single year, every single day, was my humanity search for meaning class. Irony that it was called search for meaning. But it was an elective course, and we had really powerful conversations. We read this excellent literature in that class. But it was an elective, and I, I woke up every single day knowing that I got to teach that class. That's what gave me meaning. Now, were the other classes really challenging? Did I like them? Not nearly as much, but that class gave me a lot of meaning and my coworkers too. And that's why I think it's really this idea of community and crew is so crucial. Who you surround yourself with oftentimes is the antidote to burnout. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, it, it's it's an interesting perspective. And even as you talked about following passion, I think I think for me, it was more that I I chose to be passionate about what I was doing, about the opportunities that came in front of me or that made themselves available to me in in my experience and in what I was doing. I worked in in process control automation industry, not a sexy industry. I found my purpose and my meaning in the relationships with people and the connections that I had with them, which lines up, I think, very much with exactly what you're talking about. And I think when people can learn how to connect to those things, to find those connections, it can become more purposeful, irregardless of the job that you're doing, regardless of the what it is that you're doing. And so whether it's in a grocery store, whether it's waiting tables, whether it's working at the bar, whatever the the career path is or the, the job is, you can find that connection to it uh, that will and that that will create a different neurophysiological sense as you're doing it. It will change how you feel as you're experiencing doing that job. It'll change your interactions with other people. It'll change your sense of of how you reflect on the experiences and whether you're frustrated or whether you get joy from it. How you choose to perceive those experiences is going to impact you on a neurophysiological level. And how then mindful we are in those practices is going to have a, a better outcome, a better result for us in terms of our performance. So I, I go ahead, Billy. 
Oh, I was going to say, and I, I like too, you know, you, you, you've been in a couple of different spheres, right? My, my guess is that you have a, a highly developed awareness of what your strengths are and where you excel. And as, and your curiosities have shifted over time and you're like, Hmm, I wonder how I can use my strengths to learn more about this, because that sounds like something that, that I can maybe do. And you were, again, then you laid down the consistency and the discipline and boom, you, you're, you've been successful in a bunch of different spheres. And I, I applaud you for that. My dad always said, <laughs> my dad once told me, I hope you're a really good teacher because you will starve if you have to do anything else. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. But I, but I feel grateful that I know that there are opportunities for me to help people navigate the complexities and possibilities of life that aren't just in education. And I, I think because I was in that role for 21 years, you get the golden handcuffs slapped on you and it's, then you, you, you don't look at what opportunity other opportunities out there exist because it requires taking a risk and then you know you 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 get complacent notice i didn't say comfortable because there's nothing wrong with the comfort zone people go ahead and enjoy the comfort zone you worked really hard to get into the comfort zone sit and relax in the comfort zone enjoy and bask in the joy of the comfort zone and then when you develop an awareness that comfort has turned into complacency then you need to start making the shift. And so that's really what had happened for me is that as a dean, I had just kind of grown complacent. It, even, even as a teacher, I had grown complacent. And I was trying to find a way out of the classroom to, to take on a new challenge. And then finally, I moved into that dean position. So that took me from complacency. And that was, that was a learning curve for me. And then I got comfortable in that role, but then that comfort turned into complacency. And now here I am as a solo entrepreneur, something I don't know anything about. So there's definitely no comfort where I am. I am not in what I'm trying not to uh, get complacent about is. Is just just living a life where it's like. Oh, I can rely on my savings. I can rely on my savings. That's running out. So now it's sort of, now really trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to make this work? And that's what activates the high gear. And, and now I'm, I'm taking these risks, but I'm taking them uh, based on the connections that I've made with people around the world, particularly here in Seoul. And that's why I come back here. So, so I'm going to give you a, 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 a second and I'm going to ask you to, to give us kind of some final thoughts here in a minute as we kind of wrap this up. But I want to, I want to respond to, to, to something you said there, which was, you know, as we, as we think about these experiences that we have and these paths that we have, and you talked about your comment from your, from your dad or that your dad gave you, 
I think that when we're in a, a current way of being, when we're existing in a, in our certain patterns and ways of, of being and existing, that may be true. We may This may be all I could do in this way of being. But the good news and the exciting news is that we have the ability to rewire all kinds of neural pathways and change our ways of being and how we experience the world and what we can do and accomplish in the world. And so that opens the door to getting unstuck, to not feeling like you have to be trapped in a place of uh, where you feel that complacency. And I often think about it and I use the analogy of it's like we're climbing our own performance mountain and everybody's climbing one and every everybody's looks different. And eventually you work your way up to the top where you've reached mastery, where you've reached that state and you know what you're doing and you know how to do it well and you're achieving it well. And you get a choice. You can stay there and you can keep doing it and keep being good at it. Or you can choose to go climb another mountain, have more experiences, develop new skill sets, accomplish new things and check out new views. And sometimes we get pushed off the mountain. Sometimes something changes and we can't stay where we are anymore. And sometimes we make the choice. We say, it's time to do something different. It's time to earn more money. It's time to retire. It's time to move into a different phase of life. And all of those choices come with new opportunities. And if we can look at those as opportunities, as mountains that we get to climb with so many awesome opportunities to learn and grow and experience different things, then we can get the benefit of it. We can get the benefit of all of those experiences. And obviously, a mindfulness practice, understanding and being conscious of our experiences as we're on that journey is going to create a tremendously greater experience than if we are filling it with mindlessness. So, Billy, I would love to get any final thoughts or words of wisdom, advice you have for our listeners as we as we go to wrap up this this episode. Yeah, just to kind of continue on with your mountain metaphor right there. Remember to take some time to enjoy that view. And the view isn't just the view at the top. The view is taking a look at what's around you and saying, oh, wow, this is kind of cool, too. And the coolness might just be in the serenity. The coolness might just be in the, wow, I've, I've, I've never seen trees like this before. I remember when I was in Portland or in the Pacific Northwest, the trees there have this green moss on it. And I've, I've never seen anything like that. And when you're walking through the mist and you see these green mossy trees, it's really something to, to stop and appreciate. So go ahead and, and through that climb, Take some time to enjoy all of the views as you're as you're going through that. And then when you get to the top of that mountain, just set up a tent, enjoy yourself up there. And then if you see another peak where you're like, oh, let me go check that out. Let me see what that's all about. Give that one a shot, too. So that would be kind of my my parting words there. So thank you for setting up uh, setting that up on the tee for me. 
You bet. I I love it. And we will include in the the show notes how you can get in touch with Billy if you want to work with him, if you want to experience some of these practices in your life. And to all of our listeners, I just want to remind you to always keep evolving, keep growing, keep looking at how you can rewire your neural pathways so that you can experience your best life, so that you can have more exceptional experiences on your life journey as you're climbing that performance mountain. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. And we'll be back again next week with another episode.